Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Burton Webb, President of the University of Pikeville, as our guest. All right, welcome to the Plexus Podcast. Today we have Dr. Burton Webb from the University of Pikeville. How are you today? I'm doing very well on the uh, downside of COVID infection, but doing okay. Good, feeling better today. Yep, trying to. Well, good. Well, let's go ahead. Let's start off with your background. Um, talk to us about you know your your path, your life journey, which has led you to the presidency at uh, at UPike. Sure. Well, you know, I was I was born in Michigan actually, and both my parents were teachers, so I, I knew pretty young that education was going to play a role in in my path. But when I got to college, I realized that uh, I was not cut out to teach seventh grade science classes. It, it just was not going to happen. Um, and so I went immediately and talked to my advisor and he said, you know, teaching college students is actually pretty fun, but you need to have a PhD. So uh, that became the goal at that point to teach somewhere in higher education. Uh, I, do, I have master's degrees in biology and chemistry and then a PhD in medical immunology uh, from Indiana University. We were just talking about IU basketball. Um, so that's, that's where my PhD comes from, medical school there. And, uh, you know, from that, I, I got a faculty position, my first one at Indiana Wesleyan in Marion, Indiana. And within two or three years, I was asked to come back to IU to the medical school faculty. And so I, I held a dual appointment at those two institutions for several years, uh, moved up in the administrative side of the house at Indiana Wesleyan, and then uh, took a position in Idaho, at Northwest Nazarene, as the chief academic officer. Served there for five and a half years, and uh, the position here at University of Pikeville came open. It was interesting to me because, you know, as an administrator, um, I'm always interested in, in growth and helping colleges to thrive and succeed. This institution had a really fine undergraduate college, a medical school, and they were just getting ready to start an optometry college. So for me, that hit all the buttons. I thought we can do some really interesting things there, and I made that transition. Uh, let's see, I just came through six years, so I'm in my seventh year now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now, how did University of Pikeville get into, you know, as you mentioned, they have their own medical school, um, optometry and osteopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. You're at the forefront of both of those. So how did that come about? So it started back in uh, the mid-90s, 1995, 96. Um, and the way the story goes is something like this. There were a couple of local businessmen who got tired of their doctors changing every three or four years. Um, like most rural locations, they would bring somebody in shortly after residency, they'd establish themselves in a practice, and then they wanted to be in the big city. And so they'd leave. And uh, these gentlemen said, what are we gonna gotta do to keep doctors here? And they read an article uh, that said that if a physician trains in an area, they tend to stay in the area. And so they, they just decided we, we should probably start a medical school. We'll never have doctors who will stay in rural America if we don't do that. And so they each put up a million dollars of their own money. And, and they said, we want to get this thing going. They reached out to a couple of different institutions and University of Pikeville was the one that they, they ended up uh, staying with. Uh, we entered, we admitted our first class in 1997, graduated that class in 2001. And uh, it's, it's been rolling ever since. Uh, I think that first class had maybe 40 or so students in it. Uh, we now have 145 students in each class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So on your website, you do talk about why UPike. And I, I take it students refer to University of Pikeville as UPike. Is that, is that correct? I do. Yeah, that's the acronym. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, and your website, very easy to navigate. Um, and when you talk about why, why UPike, that's a question a lot of institutions are asking today. You know, how do we differentiate? How do we compete? So can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned on the website, we keep our promises. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so we are a rurally and remotely uh, situated institution. So if you look at all at Google Maps, you can find the University of Pikeville. Um, we are two hours from every interstate in every direction. Uh, you don't you don't go through here to anywhere. You are coming here or you're not coming. And, and so because of that, you know, we, we serve uh, at the undergraduate level a, a mostly rural student clientele. 
And, and rural kids have been left out of the system just as much as urban kids have. Uh, they, they don't have access to a lot of things in a lot of places. And so our, one of our promises is that we will educate the students in the mountains. And, and we've been at that now for 133 years. Uh, in that mix, we added healthcare. We started a nursing program several years ago, then the medical school, then the optometry school. And now we've become the hub for medical education for all of Eastern Kentucky, uh, Western West Virginia and Virginia. And it's, it's just been a great place to be. So who were your mentors and who are your mentors? Yeah, so probably the one that has uh, played the most significant role in my life is a gentleman by the name of Keith Drury. Uh, Keith and I were young faculty, well, he was older than I am, uh, but we were faculty members at Indiana Wesleyan University when I was there as a, a rookie uh, teacher who was, you know, I, I knew how to teach, but I, I didn't know all the ins and outs that Keith did. And uh, we, we came together in a committee meeting early one summer and, you know, how it is when you go around the room and uh, they ask, what are you doing over the summer vacation? And Keith was, there were probably 20 of us there. Keith was second or third. And he said, well, I'm going to hike the Colorado Trail. And it was a three week trip. He was going to go hike 300 miles in that time. And I was about six people later. And I said, I'm going with Keith. Is that okay? And he looked at me and said, sure, come on along. So uh, that really was the start of a friendship that uh, we, we ended up hiking together over 10,000 miles. Uh, in our lives. We've probably ridden about 5,000 together on bicycles, um, just hours and hours and hours in, in coffee shops and other places. And I've learned more about leadership from him and from his wife, who is actually a leadership faculty member, has been for years and an expert, um, just helping me to understand how to navigate complex environments and, and to move the needle inside those environments. So I think in terms of mentors, he's probably the most significant one. Well, and you mentioned relationships and, and partnerships, and I'll tell you that it means so much. I mean, I feel like almost in any walk of life, you know, building relationships. I mean, that's what that's what you remember, you know, and I know we talked about the final four and some of the tough losses and the good wins. But I, I do know oftentimes, you know, these players will look back at the relationships they have with their coaches and their teammates. Right. I mean, that's that's something that's very important. So how, how do you ensure that you build those relationships with with students and really help support them all the way through to graduation? Yeah. So, you know, for me personally, it's a little more difficult because of the nature of my role. I'm off campus an awful lot. So I don't have the, the opportunity to develop the deep relationships I did when I was a faculty member. Um, but but we do create um, very intentional opportunities for faculty and staff to interact with students in small groups. Our goal is that every student by the end of their freshman year will be connected with at least one person, close relationship, strong friendship, very positive relationship. Ideally, we'd like to see two or three people who are adults on campus, faculty, staff, coaches, uh, and then allow them to get into what, what we call through COVID family groups. These are smaller groups of about five to 10 people who, who plug in together and live life together. Uh, during COVID, that worked because we tried to put them in, in residence halls, clustered together, and then allow them to take their masks off in those groups. We knew that if one person came up positive there, we'd probably have to isolate, quarantine the whole group until we found out who had you know, COVID. But that, that small group mentality has actually carried forward. So we're seeing that certainly on our teams, that's probably the easiest place to do it. Uh, but we're also seeing it in majors and in other clusters of uh, interest groups across campus. So that's one of the things that's helped us to dramatically increase retention on campus is that ability to build relationships. When I travel, um, I talk to alumni all the time and I ask alumni, you know, what, what are your memories? What's the best thing that, that the university has done and has been doing for a long time? And I said, no question. It's the relationships I had with the faculty and staff. Absolutely. Um, he said, without fill in the blank, I would not have graduated. And, and I hear that story over and over and over again. And so, you know, for us, that's a really important part of who we are. And, and we, we do put students at the center. Uh, it is, it's something we all say, but it's something that we're really serious about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we look at corporate partnerships and businesses, um, you know, how do you go about establishing 
you know, relationships with businesses so that you can help promote students graduating, you know, persistent to graduation, but then also being able to become gainfully employed. What does that look like? You know, it's different for every business. Um, we had uh, a, a person who, who showed up at a coffee shop in town. We used to have a coffee shop down at the foot of the college. And uh, he just showed up one day and was drinking coffee. And I went and introduced myself to him. Turns out he has the same last name as me, but we're not related that we know of, uh, Jonathan Webb. And, and we spent probably an hour just chatting that first day. He's an entrepreneur, kind of a serial entrepreneur uh, who comes into regions and, and sets up businesses. For most of his career, he set up solar farms. He did this all over the country, raised hundreds of millions of dollars for these things and set them up. And he had shifted his attention about a year before to high-tech agriculture and uh, has, has the aim of becoming the largest greenhouse grower in the United States. Uh, that was probably four years ago. Since then, he's completed one 60-acre greenhouse. You literally standing in one end cannot see the other end inside. It's almost a mile long. Um, and he is, has five more under construction. So very early on, we formed a relationship around that because I've always been interested in, in um, high-tech ag food production methods and mechanisms. We formed a relationship there. Uh, we signed an agreement with them to be their primary education to, uh, provider. And since then, of course, they've grown beyond what we have the capability of doing because they're stretched out in so many different places. And, uh, but we still provide educational content for them and for their employees. And, and so that's just one example. But he introduced me to another gentleman, uh, Nate Morris, who's the president of Rubicon, one of the fastest recycling companies in uh, Kentucky. And uh, I think he was one of the 40 youngest to watch or something. There's some list he's on. But again, it's that introduction. We're now working with him on a recycling program here in Eastern Kentucky on a few other projects. Um, that relationship leads to relationships with folks from Salesforce uh, and from a variety of other organizations that are now helping us to grow uh, our ITM programs so that students who can graduate with, if they want a degree in English, they can have one but they pick up a certificate in, in Salesforce programming along the way, which is a pretty intuitive uh, programming system. And they can get a job doing Salesforce. And then they've got great communication skills because they know how to write. So um, that's, that's becoming successful that when we're too early in it to have graduated any students yet. But um, those kinds of relationships always form in different places. You know, it's the reason that I am a member of the chamber. It's a reason that I go to statewide meetings and show up in, in odd places, you know, these big entrepreneurism uh, conferences that you think, why would a college president be there? Well, it, it's to meet entrepreneurs who are interested in growing their business and particularly growing their business in rural America. Now, is it difficult to get students to understand the value of education versus just saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to go over here and work at Google or Amazon or a local business. And you know what? I can go through a boot camp there and be trained and earn, you know, just as much, or they perceive that they can earn just as much right away. Um, what, do, what do you tell a student about that, the, the value of, of getting that degree? Yeah, so the value proposition is changing. It really is. You know, we still believe, because we still have at our heart uh, this liberal arts education, we, we believe that a broad education prepares you well, let's just back up. Your major prepares you for your first job and that broad education prepares you for every promotion you're gonna get after that. So if you wanna go out and get serial first jobs, then by all means, go to Google and take their boot camp, and you'll get that first job. But if you wanna move up in the company, you'd better have a different skill set, And that skill set includes interpersonal skills, communication, writing ability. You better be creative. You better be able to problem solve and you ought to be able to manage people. All of those things are heart and core of what it means to have a liberal education. So, so that, that's what we talk about. We talk about first job and for the reasons that you've described, we actually have worked in the last couple of years on developing over 18 different certificates that will get them in the door to the first job. But then we're also equipping them with all those second level skills. And what we're working on now is trying to provide them with what they're going to need for the rest of their lives. We want the university ultimately to be the one-stop shop where someone can come to and say, you know what? I need this discrete skill, programming in Python. 
We'll come here and in three or four quick courses, we can get you into a programming in Python certified program and boom, you're done. Or whatever the next thing happens to be. We don't know what it's gonna be. So creating the, the disposition of lifelong learning, uh, the disposition of exploration, curiosity. We want those things to be a part of who our students are so that they'll be able to continue to grow in whatever they choose. Mm -hmm. how, has, uh, how has online education and your strategy around online, how has that helped you boost revenue and scale and, and help you achieve your, your goals? And what does that look like for the future at UPike? So we're actually relatively new to the online game. Uh, my predecessors really had no vision for online whatsoever. Uh, in fact, uh, when we went and took our, our first online program uh, to our accreditors, the SACS, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges, SACS COC, uh, when we went there, they said, gosh, we haven't seen one of these in a long time, <laughs> you know, because everybody else had already moved online and, and it was our first foray into that program. Um, you know, for us, it's, it's not the cornerstone of our revenue stream, but it is something that we're seeing students wanting to have access to more and more. Uh, so we'll, we'll continue to grow very specific programs. We have an online master's degree in social work that is aimed at addiction recovery. And, and that's you know, important for us here in rural America. We have some of the highest addiction rates for opioid addiction in the United States right here. So we wanna train those, those folks to, to do that. Um, we have a fully online RNBS program, which allows associate's degree nurses uh, to complete their bachelor's degree. And, and again, this may be more of a rural phenomenon, but in, in big cities, most nursing schools shifted to a bachelor's degree a long time ago. But in rural America, most nurses are associate's degree nurses, and we need them to upskill so that the hospitals get better reimbursement, and so they take care of patients better. There are a variety of great reasons for that. So we've created that program, and it's been quite successful uh, here. And we've just now moved into an, an online program in communication that's at an associate's level because we found out that our students, um, many of our students who decide that they, they don't wanna stay for four years, they need to step out with some kind of a credential and communication really opens the doors to a lot of different things. So we've started that and we'll see how it goes. I think it's first students get enrolled next fall. So um, it, it's part of the strategy. I think it's gonna be an ongoing part of the strategy. For us, the online space is probably gonna be more about hybrid education than it is about purely online. Um, you know, the literature said for 20 years that the best form of education is hybrid education. You know, we need students to have access to a, a faculty member in class where they can ask questions and engage, but that old form of lecture just doesn't work very well anymore. So how do we provide the content that we need in, in a format that's accessible, repeatable, and acceleratable so students who are learning quickly can go through it fast um, but students who need more time can repeat it and then still provide that professor for those really intentional learning moments. Um, that's, that's what we're working on right now. And one of the things we're talking about in the strategic plan is making every classroom on campus a hybrid classroom. So students can be there, they can be away, they can be a mix of both of those things at any time in any class session. <laughs> so if we fast forward 10 years from now, where... Where do you see you bike? Oh gosh, there's so many things up in the air right now. I'm not really sure how to answer that question. <laughs> um, I think we'll still have a, a thriving undergraduate college. Um, I think it will look different. Uh, you know, I think that the, the days of the face-to-face four-year butts in seats education are probably slipping away. More and more of our students are coming to us with at least a year of college and dual credit that they've gotten from somewhere. Uh, which knocks a year off. That takes you down to three. Um, you know, so we're starting to see that. We're seeing more students who want hybrid or who want to be able to finish up a portion of a year online. At the same time, um, more students are coming to us who want to play sports. They're not quite ready to give up. They're never going to be in the pros, but you know, they want to play football for three more years. So they want to play and football and basketball, of course, the marquee sports, but you know, for us, it's the Olympic sports that we tend to thrive in and do a whole lot better. So we've had multiple individual national champions in archery. 
Um, we, we finished 10 points out of the, being the team national champion last year in three door, 3D outdoor, which is, it's huge. You know, our program is only three years old. Um, our bowlers, women's bowling is the six-time national champion, all comers. NCAA, NAIA, there is no division in bowling. They are the six-time national champions. Men have come in second three or four times. Um, they're doing really well. And so those kinds of things, uh, if my CFO had his way, we'd, we'd build a nice arena and start a curling team because he loves curling. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's on my list, but that's on his list. <laughs> so, but, you know, those, those niche sports where you have 20 to 30 kids, it creates that community where people want to come together and stay together. Often those students, particularly in the niche sports, they know they're not going to make money as a pro. They need a college degree, but gosh, they really want to keep shooting arrows. Yeah. Great. We have a way that we can help them to do that, to get that degree, to go out and have a productive life and, and do really well. And what we found, interestingly enough, with bowling is, you know, they go off into nursing and a variety of other things, but many of them actually go into the bowling industry and they become reps for Brunswick and some of these, you know, AVG or whatever it is, the, these big bowling companies. So they've got a career in business where they're doing extraordinarily well. But it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't come through bowling and come through a team that's recognized as a national champion. So I think all of those things will be a part of who we are. Um, I certainly see what, what I've described as hoteling on the rise, where students will come, they'll live in a residence hall, they'll engage in the life of the campus, but they may be taking a class from, you know, Arizona State, they might be taking one from Stanford, they could be taking two or three from Pikeville, and they mesh that together into some kind of a degree. Um, I think that'll rise. I think that'll continue to rise. Uh, so we've been looking at partnerships with all sorts of folks. Um, Acadium is, is one of our, our partners, but we've looked at Coursera, we've looked at edX, we've looked at a variety of other things uh, where students can pick up great courses from great faculty members. And if they're well assessed, they can earn credit and there's no reason they shouldn't. So I, I think that kind of blended learning is something that's gonna be on the rise in the next few years. So Dr. Webb, your background is very interesting. I think you're the first president we've spoken to, it's been, it's been over 50 now in the past 12 months, that has a microbiology degree. Mm -hmm. Very curious, how do, you, how do you take that chasm from microbiology to higher education, Walk us through that whole journey. That's that's very interesting. And how, and how does that come handy? I mean, versus having a PhD in education. Yeah, well, you've actually gotten half the degree. It's microbiology and immunology. And, yes, and I was I, more on the I immunology apologize. side than the micro side. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, very early on, I didn't I didn't talk about my favorite professor in college, uh, a guy by the name of Rick Colling, who was an immunologist. And this, bear in mind, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm not that young, okay? So I'm mid-50s. Uh, and so when I was in college was just when HIV was being discovered. So, you know, that's the early 80s. And the early 80s is the wild west of immunology. Um, if, you could, if you could wrap HIV into a grant, it got funded. And, and so there were a lot of us who decided, you know, if, if you're gonna pursue a PhD, you want it to be funded. Uh, you don't want to have to pay for it. I didn't pay a dime for my PhD. It was paid all the way through. And, and so we pursued micro and immuno and we did research that, that was interesting along those lines. Um, my research was, was actually more on the, um, the cellular side of immunology. So um, I was a very, very tiny part of a big wheel that, that, um, that gave us transplantable stem cells. So I, I had a really small role in this really big group. And uh, of course, that's what a PhD is all about, right? Becoming an expert in the tiniest thing possible. <laughs> so, uh, so, but, you know, even, even in graduate school, you know, I, I made it very clear that I wanted to have a broad education in immunology and microbiology because I wanted to be able to teach at an undergraduate college. And so, so I pursued that. And, and then when I, I hired on, uh, I was the first new hire in the biology department, I think it was in 17 years. Wow. So I was a really young guy with a bunch of seasoned professional faculty member, faculty members. Well, in that department over the course of the next uh, 16 years, I'm, I moved up through the ranks and eventually I replaced all of them. 
Wow. So everyone in my department, in the math department, the physics department, the chemistry department, uh, when by the time I got to be the chair of that division, I hired every single person who was in that department. And I was the old guy at 40 something. Mm. <laughs> so, but that's what happens when you hire into a department in their 60s, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, so that partially answers your question, I think. Um, you know, you move up in, in these roles as a department chair, division chair, associate dean, dean of the college, academic vice president, because you have a certain skill set um, and you develop that skill set as you go. Uh, so I've always been uh, pretty verbal. I'm a good writer. Uh, I have uh, what my wife, who's a clinical counselor, describes as the highest IQ, EQ she's ever seen in a male. So, I mean, I, I just pay attention to the things that are around me. And, and none of that is, is bragging. It's just it's just who I am. So um, yeah, that, that leads you into, into different roles and I think ultimately into this one. Now, how did it come in handy? Well, we just came through a pandemic with an infectious exactly. disease. <laughs> yes, so, that was yeah. my next question. <laughs> yeah, super handy. Uh, yeah. You know, most of my peers were getting their information from Fox News and CNN. Well, I don't really trust either of those sources. So I went to the primary literature. Because, you know, I could understand the journal articles as they were coming out and I'm reading this going, yeah, this really is risky. This isn't. And, you know, we we formulated our policy around that. So uh, we came through the pandemic pretty well. Uh, we had a big outbreak. Um, I think it was the fall of 20 that we actually uh, shut down campus for two weeks and then brought people back and we've been cruising ever since. So you, you kind of have to get people's attention. And I think it did. And then we've had very low numbers ever since. Now, COVID became somewhat political, especially in certain regions of the country. So as, as, as an informed president, did you have to fight an uphill battle with, with your colleagues or they deferred to you as someone who had much more scholarship and, and uh, understanding of, of, of the COVID? Yeah, it's more the latter, um, mm -hmm. you know, because really, if you get in a discussion like that and you start pulling out journal articles that have titles that they don't understand, that's right. Pretty quickly, you know, you've got an arsenal. You're not you're not going to the the airwaves. You know, I didn't have to quote Fauci because yeah. you know, he's he's an authority who I actually have a lot of respect for, but you know, I didn't have to quote him because I had all I had to do was pull out the article and say, "Well, here's what the article says. This is how it was studied. This is what they did." you know, mask effectiveness, for example. And I, we looked at the, um, you know, the acceleration rate of air being expelled during a sneeze or a cough, how much of that is caught by the mask, you know, what it looks like as it comes out to the sides. We did all this kind of stuff. And you just hold that up and, and explain it to people. And they say, oh, well, okay. Then I guess it makes sense. But if all you're relying on is, well, you know, Anthony Fauci said, you better wear your mask. That, come on, we can do better than that. This is a college, right? College with a medical school, we can do a lot better than that. So that's what exactly. we did. Exactly. No, it's, it's fascinating. And you must have a high EQ to go as a, you know, immunologist uh, at school of medicine and just be able to coalesce everyone towards the vision. Um, history of Pikeville is very interesting. Established in 1889, has gone through multiple iterations. Now it's University of Pikeville. Walk us through that rich history. Obviously that from 18... 1880 to 1920, we call that the era of universities. Almost every rural university, especially, sprouted around that period of time. And if, if you don't mind, just share a glimpse of us, you know, what brought in the college and how has it evolved in the community? Sure. Well, let me back up to your last question just for a small moment and tell you that I have probably the best team that I have ever worked with in any university anywhere. Oh, wow. um, my, my provost, my CFO, my, my academic fundraiser, the deans of the medical schools, the deans at all, these, at all the levels across campus have unified and are pulling together. We don't have the division that you get on a lot of college campuses. Mm. Um, it, it is not all me. I, I am the person who stands up and makes speeches, but it is the team. It is, it is the implementation of that vision that happens in the team. So let's go back to your question. Um, you know, take you take you through the time. This is a speech that I give every time I hire a new uh, employer, interview a new employee. 
So yeah, founded in 1889, Presbyterian uh, missionaries basically um, came down from Michigan and Ohio, not unlike, you know, I don't know, a hundred other schools at the time, right? And uh, they wanted to set up a college in a, a rural far-flung area and they thought Appalachia was, you know, it had full of a lot of poverty and not a lot of great education. And if you look, you know, back, um, it, it was pretty bad back then. Um, that was in the agrarian phase uh, really before coal was even a big deal. Uh, and, and it was trappers and miner or trappers and, you know, farmers, little subsistence farms and all that kind of thing. Um, they looked at a lot of towns, decided to settle on Pikeville, even though it flooded out about every seven years and they had to rebuild. Uh, but they settled here and they started um, the Pikeville Collegiate Institute, which was basically a really fine high school. And if you look back at the curriculum, it's interesting because they taught Latin one and two, Greek one and two, calculus one and two, you know, and, and it was a stronger curriculum than a lot of colleges have these days in the high school, but that's kind of typical for that time. Um, that, that did quite well. It was even from its inception, co-educational. They wanted boys and girls to be there, to be taught together. Um, and very quickly, they, they brought in minority students. We had a pretty large population regionally of folks who are African-American who came in to work in the mines. Um, so, you know, we, we integrated way before most other uh, institutions in the, in the country did. And, and it was just a, a fine little college. Um, they, they got associate's degrees, I think, sometime in the 20s or so. Uh, and then bachelor's degrees in the 60s, got SACS accreditation sometime around there as well. Uh, and, and really, you know, kind of came into their own about that time. Uh, through most of the history, somewhere between 300 to 500 students uh, was about right. Uh, they had blips where they'd come up to 1,000 or so and then drop back down, you know, as, and, and really the blips always went in opposite cycles to how well the mining industry was doing. So if coal was making a lot of money, well, then the college got smaller. But if the coal industry was going in a bust phase, well, then the college got larger. That, that's just the way it went. Um, they, they found their niche really with education, I'd say uh, up until probably 10 or 15 years ago, 75% of the teachers in Eastern Kentucky were trained here. Um, now they're coming from a lot of different places. But uh, so that was kind of the niche. And then, as I said, in the 90s, they added the medical school and then really took a, a hard shift toward medical education uh, based on that. And, and since that time, we've stayed focused on training undergraduates in the best way we can and, and producing really high quality healthcare providers. So as, as a rural serving institution, right? Uh, the School of Medicine was established partly because of, you know, having the doctors around, but there's also the question of brain drain, right? I mean, and brain drain happens not just in medicine, it happens in every field. It's an area where a lot of rural areas have, have really encountered. Um, what is your view of that? And, 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 and do you see your institution as an anchor to actually uh, prevent uh, 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 exodus or out immigration from your area? Well, we try to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, every, every once in a while, there's an initiative in a big city or a rural area where they, they talk about shop local. And I love those initiatives because I, I love to shop local. I don't, you know, I don't like to go to the big W store down the road. And, you know, there, there are a lot of things I'd really prefer to get right here. But my favorite mantra is educate local. Um, you know, like most communities in Kentucky, uh, everybody is brainwashed from the time they're in diapers, blue diapers, by the way, that they need to go to the University of Kentucky. And if they haven't gone there, they haven't become successful. Well, unfortunately, what all of us, all of us in rural America have discovered, at least rural Kentucky, if they, if they go and get their education at UK, they get really enticed by the bright lights in the big city and they just stay. You know, they don't, they don't come back. So uh, we, we try to provide high quality education right here so they can stay local. Uh, they can get their education here. They can go visit Lexington anytime they want. You can still buy basketball tickets if that's what you wanna do. Um, and, you know, go to football games. That's, that's all fine, but just come home, come back to Pikeville um, and, and get your education here. So here's what we've seen lately. 
Um, since we started making some shifts in the way we teach and, and the things that we do, uh, we, we have a rotary event every spring that honors all of the valedictorians from all of the county schools. In any given year, that's 10 to 15 students. And we have a big banquet for them and we ask them to tell us where they're going to college. A couple of them are coming here, but the rest of them are usually all going off to UK and Moorhead and Eastern Kentucky. And I, I go around to all of them and I say, congratulations. When you get tired of being in class with your 1200 best friends, come back, we've got a place for you. And more than half of them do. Nice. So they, they go off to, to UK. We've had this so many times. They go off to UK thinking they want to major in, in pre-med or something. And they step into that first general chemistry class with literally a thousand students in a lecture hall. And they're being taught by you know, a, a TA for whom English is a second language. They're not bad people, but they don't communicate very well, and especially not with kids who have an Eastern Kentucky accent. You know, those, those things are both wonderful things, but they don't always mesh really well when it comes to a learning environment. So, you know, often by the end of the first semester, they, they just call their moms and dads and say, I really want to come home. And we see big influx of transfer students in January or the following fall uh, when they come back. And then we do everything we can to help them. We also see the reverse where students are coming from urbanized or suburbia. And do they end up staying in Pikeville? A little less frequently, but we do see it sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've, we've got, of course, we've got football, basketball, and a few other teams um, where we get some inner city kids. And what we find there is that they really enjoy the laid back environment that we have here. Um, we have a, a nice little town that's got a variety of different sorts of ethnicities. In addition to the college, we also have the major medical center for the whole region that's here. And so there is this really odd mix of cultures for Eastern Kentucky, you would expect it to be pretty pasty. But, but in fact, there are, there are big Indian community, there's a big Arabic community, there's sizable African-American community. So there's, there's more than what you would expect. Uh, and so what we find is that a lot of kids just find it to be this, this laid back style of living that they really enjoy and they settle in and they stay. I wish the numbers were higher. I think inward migration would be a great thing in Eastern Kentucky. Um, I, I think it would help us in a lot of different ways, but we're not quite there yet. We'll, we'll see. Now, a lot of our docs do stay. So a lot of our medical students do end up settling here. They end up working over at the, the local hospital or one of the others in the region. So this is a two-part question because I think the issue of rural institution is, is an important one and one that definitely deserves even more scholarship. So I'm very interested in your point of view. One is in a lot of towns like Pikeville, the, the institution is actually one of the biggest employers uh, of the region. So the impact of the institution um, is, is as important as a factory or, or any other big corporation that, that, that could be there. The second thing is, uh, I think Appala Appalachian State University just published information about rurality and, and there's about 300 these not-for-profit private schools around the country serving about 400,000 undergraduate students, approximately, in the last research that we did. And, and the question becomes, what is the importance of a rural-serving institutions, given the fact that proportionally they serve such a small population of the undergraduate students nationwide? So, so what is the role for rural? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's 300 institutions really serving a very small portion of undergraduate. Um, why so much emphasis? Why is it important for them to stay around? Well, as long as people continue to live in rural America, I think we need to have options for education in rural America. Mm -hmm. I think the needs of rural America are quite different than the needs of urban America. Um, we are seeing an, a migration into cities, but you can't all live in a city because there are things from the rurality that you need to be able to survive in an urban environment. So who's gonna to continue to do the work that rural, that, that needs to happen in rural parts of America? Well, hopefully it's gonna be some college educated folks and hopefully some of those folks will be educated right here in rural America because they understand the place, the situation, the mentality uh, that's, that's happening here. I, I think that's crucial. And, and it's, it's so important to not have all of the intelligentsia located in big cities where they're not paying attention to what's happening in the rest of America. 
I mean, I was at a conference in New York City probably three years ago, and one of the speakers made made the comment like he said something like, "Well, I I never try to go across the the East River. I don't like to go any further west than that." Really, the whole world is not New York, my friend. It's just not. You know, there there are huge swaths of America that are valuable and interesting and value things different from what you value. And that's not to say that either of you are wrong, but you still need to have a place for rural and rural, urban and rural um, kinds of issues and solutions. And I just think that's really important. Let, let me give you a different example. I'll come at this a different way. Um, one of the biggest problems that we have in the United States right now is addiction. That's addiction to opioids and other prescription drugs, heroin, or a variety of other things. One of the highest, um, sorry, one of the lowest recidivism rates, one of the highest success rates for treatment of addiction is based just up the road in Louisa. They have an 85% success rate. Only 15% of their clients go back to drugs. They have over 3,000 people in treatment right now with that kind of a success rate. They're, try, they're trying all over the country to replicate what uh, addiction recovery centers are doing. And, and with some success and sometimes not. But my point is this, there are incredible ideas in rural America that are being overlooked by urban America because they discount them right away. Oh, those hicks, they just don't know anything. And that is so short-sighted, so short-sighted. And so I do think we've got wonderful intelligent people here in rural America, here in Eastern Kentucky and in West Virginia and Virginia who can help to solve some of the big problems that we're seeing and we will continue to face in the United States. We ignore them to our peril. And so the role for those rural colleges is to find those gems and then to be able to assist them in developing and doing the things they need to do. And not to mention that the clean weather, the community, the, the education, and just the, the tightness of the community goes, goes a long way. Whereas just like a big class, when you're in a city, you get lost in the shuffle, right? Sure. And, and so I, I, I ask that because, I mean, that always comes up. Now, I am so impressed with the, with the breadth and the depth of the number of degrees and majors that your institution has, right? So, um, talk to us about, I mean, you, you, you're not, you know, university, but you offer so many degrees and so many majors. Um, how, how do you manage to do all of this with, with, in, in a small university setting? Yeah, you know, it's, it's hiring a really diverse faculty and then crafting, being very intentional about how we craft a core curriculum in a discipline area and then spoke away from that for different majors. So if you can craft a tight core, uh, and then leave yourself the space to be able to do some creative and interesting things, then you have the ability to do that. I think that's actually going to get, um, well, I have two thoughts about that. I think the diversity of the courses that our students and other students will have access to will increase exponentially over the next few years, because some of the best faculty in the world are putting their courses fully online, and our students will be able to access them just like any other students can. So I think that's going to happen. I also think the opposite, that the major will become less and less important over the course of the next few years. Um, I, I think that majors are becoming um, irrelevant in terms of, of what they do for someone after they graduate. When was the last time, Brad, someone asked you what your college major was? Long time. Years. A long time. That's right. You know, if I weren't in this role being interviewed on podcasts, no one would have asked me. And actually, neither of you did ask me what my undergraduate major was. So I think the, the whole concept of a major as a focusing um, concept for a student's study is something that probably should fall by the wayside because we need broad, diverse thinkers. You know, you can have an interest, pursue your interest, but why call it a major? Why not just, this is the pathway that I'm, I'm taking. So we're actually toying with going to six pathways on campus and eliminating most of the majors or folding them into the pathways. So you might have a, a path that you pursue that's a business path. Well, you could do accounting, you could do management, you could do finance, you could do marketing, I mean, fill in the blank, blah, blah, blah. You can get very specific and all, all sorts of different kinds of things in there, or 
you can take a business pathway and add all of the courses that you need for that expertise. And then be able to demonstrate that to your first employer because they're the only one that's going to care. After that, they want to be able to, they want to know what you can do. Well, what you can do is a body of work that you present. Is that a portfolio? Is that a, a CV or a resume that says, these are the things that I've done? We can help you develop that so that you can move forward in that career path. But I, I'm not convinced that, that anybody's going to want to hire a, a Chinese culture and pottery major. I mean, it's fascinating. I love it. It's interesting. It's great to study, but, but do you really want that? Or do you want somebody who understands a variety of cultures? That's very fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if other institutions have had those kinds of broader paths because uh, I, I just attended the conference on metacognition discussing how, you know, how do you frame studies? So skills don't become obsolete. Right. And we just had a very important um, uh, presidential symposium uh, with industry leaders talking and presidents talking about AI, right? So training students for jobs that we don't know what they're going to look like years from now, right? So right. Um, uh, for instance, Brad was a journalist. I was a philosophy major, right? Uh, to the uh, dismay of my parents at the time. But uh, having said that, uh, the problem-solving skills and the ability to become a lifelong learner uh, seems to be more and more because it doesn't seem like you stop learning with a degree. You obviously keep continuing because skill sets are not stagnant. They're much more dynamic. So to that, to that end, um, talk to us about what you say is the future of education, aside from obviously the modularization of learning, what is this AI going to do for our students? So, you know, for years when I was a young faculty member, um, we talked about creating a curriculum that had, that touched all three domains, right? Knowledge, skills, and dispositions. Mm -hmm. Well, the easiest of them is knowledge. knowledge it, yeah. It's super easy to transmit knowledge. I stand in front of a room, I talk for 30 minutes, I give you questions that test whether or not you paid attention. That's knowledge. Um, skills take a little bit more time. So I would have to take you into the laboratory and teach you how to do cell culture. And you're going to fail at it probably for the first six months. You'll get contaminated almost every time you do something. And then something clicks and you figure out the technique. You have a skill that's an acquired skill. So skills take a lot more time. They're a lot more, more difficult um, to get at than knowledge. I think Part of the problem with higher education in America is that we focused on knowledge. And now all of the knowledge I need is right here. I mean, it's just right here. So, so why? Um, knowledge isn't what we need to focus on anymore. We, you need to have a baseline of knowledge. There's no question about that. But you need to have really good skills. And you've talked about some of them. We've already talked about some of them. Lifelong learning, curiosity, a variety of things like that, that um, that are, are just skills that you need to acquire. You need to know how to look things up in the literature. You need to be able to read them carefully and critically. Those are skills, right? But then we got to get back to dispositions. What kind of a person are you? What, what is your default? You know, if, if you're faced with a conflict, what is your default setting? Is your default setting to argue or is your default setting to try to find points of reasonable understanding? You know, do you build a narrative in your mind that says, this person is a bad person because they disagree with me? Or do you build a narrative that says, you know, gosh, they've got a point. I don't agree with it, but let's see if we can find a common core or a common place where we can stand together. Those are dispositions. And we have neglected dispositions, utterly neglected them. There's a disposition of generosity. You give. You know how you teach it? You give somebody a little bit of money and say, go give it away. And what they found is if you can get that, that student to just give away that $5 to somebody who looks like they need it, that the next week they'll pull their own five out and give it again. It's dispositional. And so that's just one example of things that I think education needs to move toward because AIs don't have dispositions. AIs have some skills, but they don't have the human skills yet that humans do. Knowledge, gosh, and you can program an AI to have whatever knowledge you want. It'll be better than any human you're going to put in the room. So we better start teaching skills and dispositions or we're going to have problems moving forward with, with robots and AIs and everything else that's out there. 
Well put. Uh, what, what else would you like to share about, you know, University of Pikeville, your beautiful region with, with our listeners? Uh, gosh, I think, I think probably the, the simplest thing to say is, um, you know, most of the listeners will be living in urban centers. And I, I would say, don't ignore rural areas. Uh, there, are, there are wonderful people out here. And the more you get out and get to know the people who live in rural areas, the more you'll find out that that's probably the lifestyle that you've been idolizing for a long time. Yeah, we don't have all the fancy restaurants. I can't go out and get Thai tonight. You know, I can't. So I have to plan for that or I have to cook it myself. But, um, but there are some other wonderful things about this place. When I wake up in the morning, I can see the sunrise. I don't have a whole lot of buildings in my way. I have a little bit of a mountain in the way, but you know, that's only there because I chose to live a little lower in the valley. Uh, you know, when I commute to work, I walk, but if, if I live three or four miles from campus, that drive takes three or four minutes. And we have, we have what we affectionately call rush minutes. There's a period of time where the elementary school is dropping off kids. And if you go through town at that, in that five minute window, you're going to have to wait. Other than that, nope. If you've got a 45 mile commute, you got 45 minutes to get here and it's going to be just fine. So there are things about this life, the, the walkability of the city, the safety of the city, um, that we live in, the amenities that we do have that are, are really very wonderful, that I would encourage urbanites to get out and experience, because one of these days, they might want to be back in a rural area where life is slow and easy, and, and it could be that we'll see rural areas grow again. Dr. Rapp, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P-L-E-X-U-S-S dot com forward slash solutions. Or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com.